Welcome to the Balanced, Beautiful, and Abundant Show. My name is Rebecca Whitman, and I'm a success mentor. I believe there are seven pillars of success. Your spiritual life, your physical fitness, your emotional, romantic, mental, social, and finally, your financial life. When you get all seven areas in alignment, you are balanced, beautiful, and abundant. I learned this the hard way. I've always made money. Unfortunately, I spent so much time making money that I never had time for the rest of my life. So, despite not having financial worries, I was never happy. I wanted romance, but I didn't have time to date. I wanted to be in great shape, but I couldn't find a moment to go to the gym. I wanted a more spiritual life, but I didn't meditate. That also takes time. I wanted to read great books and fill my mind with deep thoughts, but I never made the time. I wanted a great social life, not just going to work-related events. Emotionally, I was a wreck because my life was totally out of balance. Today, I earn more money than I ever have in my life, and I work only part-time. I have the relationship of my dreams. I'm in the best physical shape of my life. I'm spiritually grounded. I feel fulfilled mentally, socially, and emotionally. My life is in perfect alignment. This podcast will help you discover where your life is out of balance. My mission is to support you in achieving work-life balance so that you can have more fun and freedom in life. On my show, you will get to learn from experts in all seven areas of abundance. My guests have achieved tremendous success in their zone of genius. Are you ready to go to a level 10 in all seven areas of life? You got this. Hello, Gregor Collins. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Welcome to the Balanced, Beautiful, Abundant podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And I love how you got on the show because apparently I auditioned for either Fifth Wheel or Blind Date like 20 years ago when I first moved to LA and I was right off the bus and you were a producer. So somehow, I emailed my application to you or you were CC'd and now you're on my email list and you were like, let's do a podcast. I know. That was another life. I mean, I feel like I've lived four lives since this blind date days. But um, yeah, I just started suddenly just within the last like two years, I started like after all that time, like for two years, I'm suddenly on your mailing list. And I think it was like kismet because we came together and we had so much in common and so much to talk about. and. So, yeah, it's really cool. It was totally meant to be. So let me tell my audience how awesome you are. So Gregor is an author, speaker, and contributor. He started his career as a reality TV producer, how we met. Then he acted in theater, TV, and film. His writing has been featured in such publications as the LA Times, the Huffington Post, the Guardian, just to name a few. He travels the world as a keynote speaker for his first book, The Accidental Caregiver, which chronicles his real-life experience caring for Holocaust refugee Maria Altman in the last three years of her life, and his new book, 
The Accidental Caregiver Part 2 is out now on Amazon. So I'm so excited to get into these questions. I've been reading, crying, like just so in this adventure you take us on with Maria. So what made you say yes when your friend asked you to take care of an elderly person? You've never done any caregiving in your life. Like what was that inner voice that said, I'll try it? You know what? I said yes, honestly, because I felt obligated. So that was at a time where I, I'm an actor in Hollywood. I'm sort of on the cusp. You know, I'm, I'm going on some really good auditions. And I get a call from, from my friend Tom, who's a fellow actor. And he's like, I'm taking care of this lady. I met this lady on Craigslist. And you have to meet her. Um, and then eventually it became, we need another caregiver. And so I, I really... I was really resistant at first and I, he started to make me feel a little bit guilty for not at least meeting her because he was <laughs> saying, he was saying, you're so trustworthy. You're the only friend I could trust for this. Trust me. Like she's amazing. You'll love her. And, and so I, I sort of like, you know, capitulated and I went and I, and I met her. And then that's when, <laughs> that's when pretty much my life took on a whole new direction. Did you have any feeling when you were going to meet her that your life would take on a new direction? Did you have any kind of like hint or intuition or was it like, oh, I'm just going to meet this older woman because my friend's kind of guilting me out? It was the latter, but, and maybe in retrospect, I think, because I do believe that everything happens, especially the big events, I do believe happen for a reason. So in retrospect, I, 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 I just felt like that was you know, meant to be, I, there was really not a big part of me that was excited. I, I, I mean, I wasn't a complete idiot. I mean, I, I, I love meeting interesting people and it's not like I was a complete, you know, uh, you know, soulless person that just, <laughs> Oh, screw old ladies. I don't want to meet anybody if it's not a casting director, but like, uh, when I, but it was love at first sentence. So when I really knew that it was something special is when she walked into the room and I'm sitting around the table with her son and Tom and she, we make eye contact and it, it was, and she's like, and you must be Gregor. And, and I just, at that moment, I think I knew that this is such a special lady that I, I think part of me thought at that moment that I never wanted to leave her for some reason. So you felt the connection right away. I did. I did. She was so, she was 92 at the time and she we connected as if we were just two kind of curious souls that were so curious about each other. She had so many questions about me as an actor and what I was doing. And I had so many questions about her. It was like, I forgot her son and Tom were in the room. We were just kind of like two, uh, two people the same age going at it at a coffee shop or something. Was it a romantic connection or more of a soul connection that you felt right away? Um, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to define it. It was just something where we both wanted to be around each other. But I think, I think it felt, as the days went by, it felt romantic. And, and it, romantic in the sense that, you know, romance being the excitement around love. I, I think we were both excited around the prospect of loving each other. And obviously it wasn't physical, but it was just, it, it was, it was a kind of a, an otherworldly kind of a romance, yeah. Was it agape love, which is even higher than romantic love, like kind of the God is love, the love that is like this intangible, beautiful force that holds the world together? It was, it was 
Um, yeah, agape love. I hadn't. I, I didn't know about that. I, agape love. I, I think it was a a. I I had you know. Um, can we edit this too? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> just sweet. Just take this out. You know, it's I'm hard just, to articulate. What I'm hearing is yeah. that it was so different and so deep from what you've ever experienced that it's actually hard to articulate. So the three kinds of love are platonic love, friendship, romantic, and agape love, which is like this higher, like my lab to me, my goal, my chocolate lab is agape love. He just loves everyone and everything. And he's just like a loving presence that you feel as soon as he walks into the room. So maybe it was a hybrid between a romantic and agape love. I don't know. Yeah, it, it was, I, I think it was sort of on, I think you can't really, couldn't really define it. I mean, you know, um, I loved her uh, in so many different ways. I, I loved her like a, a friend, a mother, a grandmother. I loved her. Um, um, she felt like almost an extension of, of me and, and my curiosity about life and, and my just, um, just, I don't know. I, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, one of my favorite relationship mentors, Dr. Pat Allen, says men fall in love when they give. So because you gave to her more than you gave to any other human being, I'm sure that also the more you gave, kind of the more you fell in love. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I, it just a quote just came to me from Alexander Smith. It, it's um, love is the discovery of yourself in, in others. Mm. And I think, um, I think maybe that was it that I, I was discovering myself in, in her through, through loving her. That is so beautiful. So what qualities did being a caregiver bring out in you that you didn't even know you had? Um, I, I've always been, a, a, lived a pretty self-absorbed kind of a life. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an extremely good friend and I'm an unselfish person, but um, sometimes it's like you have to be like, um, you know, self-absorbed when you're when you're pursuing your own things. And so, I, I as an actor, I just cared about uh, myself and and how many auditions I was getting and and who was viewing me as a talented actor. And so, I think um, I think when I was faced with having to care for someone other than myself, it it added a whole new dimension to myself, and it it it, it kind of um, it really made me a better man. And, and, um, it, it opened up my whole world to a, to a, to something that I was feeling that I never really felt before. That's beautiful. I feel the whole reason why we're here is for love and service. You know, we, we think that we want all this stuff, like, you know, to be a famous actor, to be a billionaire, whatever it is that we think, but I think ultimately we're wanting to feel that loving presence that validation and it was interesting as the book went on you became less and less interested in your auditions and more interested in spending time with Maria can you speak into that yeah you know there was a moment when I was at an audition and it was an audition for Sons of Anarchy the tv show and I was still auditioning as I was a caregiver and I, I would you know call Tom last minute and Tom probably got really 
annoyed with me, even though he's such a nice guy that he would never admit it. But I would say, Tom, can you cover my shift? And when I had these big auditions come up, so I had a big audition come up for Sons of Anarchy and I gave the audition and the casting director, which this never happens, but after I finished my read, the casting director was like, hey, can you stick around a little bit? Because the director's here and I really want the director to see you. Um, that never happens, you know? And, and, and so, so she sort of stepped out of the room and I just sat there and knowing that I had to get back to the house with Maria because I had told Tom, I'm only going to be 20 minutes. It's in Santa Monica. I'll be back. Don't worry. And I started to get really stressed out because I like, I don't want Tom to have to wait. And I was really, and I really loved Maria and, and, and I, I really looked forward to being at her house. And so when the casting director came back to check, actually, no, she didn't come back. I found her. So I walked out of the room and I found her at her desk. And she's assuming, of course, as, as any actor would, I would be, you know, a sycophant waiting for the director. And I went up to her and I said, look, um, I hate to say this, but I, I have this day job that I, that I really care about. There's this lady, your name's Maria, and I take care of her. And I really care about her and I need to get back to the house because, because I'm have, people are waiting for me and I have to get back. I'm sorry, I, I can't wait for the director. And I walked out of there and she was shocked and she, her mouth was just agape. And I thought, well, that, that is, I think that's the moment where I realized that I'm doing something that I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And I'm, I'm, I'm exactly where I need to be. That is beautiful. So did you get the part? Uh, no, I, I, no, I mean, of course not. I never heard again. Um, but that's okay. And I don't even have any regrets about it. I, I actually look back on that story with, with a, with a kind of a joy. Like I, that, that's, 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 those are defining moments in your life when you like turn down something that could, you know, be amazing to, uh, do what you know you need to be doing. So. That reminds me of getting like validation externally through your acting, like you're good, you're talented, you're good looking, you get to be on a hot show versus like coming from contribution. Like you were, you were more excited by coming from contribution, taking care of someone, giving your love and care to an elderly person who really counted on you than getting that outside validation. And that, that's a huge paradigm shift. Yeah. Do you, do you remember a moment in your life where you became service oriented? Is there that one moment or was it just like a series of moments? Wow. That is such a good question. <laughs> Not um, to put I'm you on excited. the spot. I get to be interviewed too today. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I first got on a spiritual path when I was attending Princeton university and I was, uh, I became a sober member of AA and they teach a lot about love and service. So I, I don't know if there was a moment, but I had different commitments where I would like make the coffee for a meeting or I would greet people at the door. I would like go speak in another town. And, and those uh, commitments actually were more fulfilling than, you know, being at Princeton and all the, and all the hoopla that was happening there, all the pomp and pageantry of being a Princeton undergrad. So I don't know if it was a singular event, but it was just definitely a paradigm shift that I got when I was about 19 years old. And I go back and forth. I forget. I'm like, oh, you know, I, I need this external validation to feel okay. And then I'm of service and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I get to be of service. Like I don't have to get, I don't have to use uh, external validation to feel good. I can feel even better if I am generous. 
Yep. So it's a, it's a, it's a daily struggle. All <laughs> the struggles real, but the I battle know. between my ego and, you know, my heart, it's definitely a, a daily discipline, but it's worth it. So after spending time with her and her last three years of her life, do you look at life and death differently now? Well, her, I always say her death changed my life and her life changed my life too. I feel like, cause I would talk to people as she was sort of on her deathbed, you know, she, she was definitely, um, we knew it was going to happen soon. And I remember sitting down with her friend, Jerry Collins, who ironically has the same last name as me, but we're not even related. And he's had a lot of death in his life. And, um, he said, and he's the most good natured. I mean, he's had so much tragedy. His wife is, he, he's had so much tragedy in his life and he's the most good natured, jovial kind of a guy. And he said, you know what, Gregor? when Maria dies, you know, it's going to change your life. And, you know, it, it really did. Um, it was, I think it was the first person who I really loved, who I, who I lost. Um, I, I don't think I've ever lost anybody that I loved so deeply. So, so in that respect, um, yeah. And as far as lasting, I, I mean, you know, I just think her, her, her life and her death, has just kind of somehow accidentally catapulted me on this mission to go around and spread her love, which I've really found through the new book is, is really, I'm not really spreading her Maria's love and Maria's life. I'm really spreading my own love and I'm, I'm really just, I'm really finding an opportunity to give, give who I really am to the world through giving Maria to the world. It's almost like she showed you how to do it, you know, like yeah. she was so open hearted and so giving that now you're like, I know how to be Maria in the world, which is really Maria is symbolic of just a shining light, a loving presence, just shining your light toward everyone like Maria did. So she was kind of like a beautiful example for you. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect way of explaining it. Yeah. And now her light is shining through you. Because we're all connected. It's like we're all waves on this ocean of love and light. And I'm sure you miss her dearly, but her light is shining through you because she showed you how to be that shining light. Yeah, yeah, totally. I don't really miss, because I've had the, had the um, advantage and opportunity to live her almost every day, especially you know, writing these books and, and giving talks and stuff. Um, I really don't, I really feel like those three years with her, I didn't need any more time with her. I would have loved it, of course, but I, I feel like those three years were like a lifetime. I had, I had, I had just enough perfect uh, amount of time with her. And now I don't miss her because I celebrate her. That's so beautiful. And what a powerful teacher she was. And she probably still is. So do you talk to her? Do you communicate with her? Does she ever show her presence? I know she said many times in the book that she was going to be watching over you in heaven, giving you all the good breaks that she could give you. What is your experience <laughs> with her, uh, Maria, on the other side of the veil? Um, I, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. I, I do feel her. Uh, I feel like I feel her presence when I'm when I'm being my true self and I'm being who I really am, I feel like that's when Maria is with me and she's sort of clapping and, uh, 
and, and smiling at me, you know, because there are so many times in my life where I, my, what my, what my brain and my psychological drama is telling me is, is I'm convinced is the truth. And then it affects who I am. And I just have to really fight through that, those times. And, and, and once the clouds part, I feel like that's when Maria is like, yeah, Gregor, you're, you're being yourself. And I like it. <laughs> do you ever ask yourself what would Maria say or do in this situation? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I do. Um, I always try to live up to her. I think I ended the first book, like I wrote her a letter after she died. And I, I was like, I want to live up to, like, she was such an elegant woman and I want, and she spread so much love that I wanted to live up to her love for the rest of my life. And so I do feel like, um, I do feel like I, I do have high standards for the people I'm with. And I, I'm very careful about who's in my life and my friends because I have high standards and she had high standards for, for character. And I feel like, um, I feel like I always felt like when I was with Maria, I never wanted to bring anybody to the house to meet her. That wasn't an amazing person. Like I would never bring like an average, like, Hey, you know, just an average friend that you're like, Hey, you want to meet Maria? No, no. I had to carefully select who was meeting her and she had to be proud of me being friends with that person. So. So I know during the book, you were having kind of a hard time with the LA dating scene, which to this day, even though you're now in DC, people are still having a hard time with it. So how has your relationship and loving Maria changed your relationship with women and your love life? That's such, oh, that is a tough question because, (laughs) because, you know, that's a whole, that, that's a, that's a side of my life I haven't quite cracked the code with yet. And for a while I thought I had, I looked at Maria for a while. I thought like, maybe I'm not connecting with a woman my age. Cause I put Maria on such a pedestal and I, maybe I'm looking for a Maria and a, and a woman and I'm looking for all her amazing qualities and somebody my age and, and being disappointed. But I, I don't know. Um, it's, um, Again, it goes back to when I'm, when I'm fully, when I'm not giving myself any barriers and I'm, I'm fully just saying yes to the moment and fully open to everything in, in front of me, that's, that's who I was with Maria, you know? And so I, I just, I just feel it filters into all aspects of my life. So that's a complicated, that's like a whole nother podcast talking about, <laughs> talking about women my time. age. Yeah, I'll have time. So, I mean, what did she teach you about women? Because you were kind of feeling a little jaded about women before you met her. Yeah. Um, well, she list. I always say that she listened with her heart and not her ears. And um, I guess in my experience uh, in LA, I, I was meeting women that sort of weren't really listening with their with their hearts. And um, what did it teach me? Um, what is it, you mean, like, like as it is now today, um, what did you learn about women. Cause you'd never met a woman of that age and yeah, so elegant and an heiress and, you know, someone who has lived through, you know, nine decades, I'm sure you learned something about women and she was always talking about women and sexuality and a lot of different things with you. Yeah. I thought she was a real woman. I would describe her as a real la- a lady, you know, and actually a, a lady because she, I think there are just like there are men and boys. I think there are, yeah. are, there's a woman and there's a lady 
I think she was a real lady and she could be, um, she could be just elegant um, and at the same time have an irreverent kind of a wit, an impish kind of a wit. And she could also be so tender and loving and kind, but yet also be, you know, crack, you know, crack a, a wise joke, at, you know, um, at a moment's notice. And she was just almost like a cross, like I would describe her as a cross between um, Maria von Trapp from The Sound of Music and like almost Julia Child, the chef. Okay. And, and also Mary Poppins, you know, in there as well. So, um, but uh, I... I, I do have high standards and I think I, I, I get really picky when it comes to like the whole women and, and dating world. I, I get really picky and I think, well, is that, is that my high standards or is that me being unnecessarily picky? I don't know. What's the difference? I think you need to hire me as a coach to help you I, with this area. I think it's out think, of balance. <laughs> see that that's, that's the best. That's a good answer. I, I do. I, I, I wouldn't mind consulting you for that. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, she's also, she also had a Mae West side, though, because she was constantly, like, hitting on younger guys. She loved men, and that started, I think, with her father. She had such a fantastical view of her father, and when she remembers her childhood, they were, like, best friends, and he was more like a grandfather to her. So, right. so she loved men, and she was not shy about it, and we would go out, and she was the, you know, she would the type where if we... Like one time I remember there was this guy delivering water to the house, like the igloos to the house. Yeah. And he was a really strapping, good looking guy. And she, and she just looks at him and goes, my goodness, you're good looking, you know? And that, <laughs> she was very, you know, uh, I mean, you know, I don't think she would have been necessarily saying that sort of thing when, you know, with her younger self. But I think when you're you know, older, you, you might say things that you never would have said when you were younger, but um, but she was very open about that. And she, she was just open and she didn't like, you know, she didn't like a certain one, you know, that she didn't like the, the women that were prissy and sort of, um, sort of, uh, not, um, just very kind of ha has sort of like an attitude about everything. And she, she loved people who were open and, and, and funny and elegant and not afraid to be, um, you know, say something naughty or, you know, so, um, but mo mo most of yeah, she she loved uh, she loved men, and she had uh, she had three male caregivers, so she was a very happy lady. <laughs> For young caregivers too. So what I loved about her is her humor, even in yeah. her you know dying days, and I think that is such a great way to go through life is not to take it so damn seriously because it is all going to end anyway. So why not just? You know, even though we're in very serious times right now, I mean, we're in like one of the most challenging times of our nation's history. But one of the things that my dad taught me is never lose your sense of humor, no matter how serious it is, because we're all going to die anyway. Yeah, she. I remember, I mean, there's so many things she said, both heartbreaking and funny. But she said once, like when I showed up at her bedside, she was sort of on her deathbed. And, you know, she said... Uh, well, now I know how to get you here, you know, because, you know, it's the whole like, I, I have to be on my deathbed for you to come. But she was, of course, kidding. But like, and she would also say things like, um, we were sitting on the bed together and she looked at me and she goes, you know, Gregor, you're the best part about the end. Oh, 
that's and that's so still that's still chokes me up because uh, I've put that line in in screenplays and everything. I mean, it's it's the best part about the end. I mean, oh my gosh! Like, not only is she saying I'm the best part about it, she's calling what she's going through right now the end. And I'm like, no, I don't want this to be the end. I mean, it was just. And at those times, I would have to leave the room and, and like cry in the bathroom and not not show her. Um, so uh, she just would say either either she would say heartbreaking things or absolutely hilarious things, and to the very end, yeah, she was amazing. Because the human condition is heartbreaking and hilarious because we're all going to die and we're all going to have an end, and we don't know when it is. At least you know when you're in your nineties, you kind of know when it is with the COVID and terrorism and all the crazy things going on, like every day could be the end. So that's why it's so important to find the humor while we're here. And I know one of the great Buddhist teachings is to meditate on impermanence. And some people might think, Oh, that's so dark to, you know, meditate on your own death. But when you, when you look at your life through that perspective, you can really enjoy your day and have a lot more like precious moments because you know it's going to end. Yeah, yeah. When you face your mortality, um, that that is, uh, I think that's that's def- when you really face it. I mean, in, in a truthful way, then then that sort of frees you up to live life in the moment. I, I think I think that's true. You know, it's and tough, it though. frees you to make mistakes because it's yeah. like. So I make a mistake. Who cares? I'm all, I'm going to die anyway. So you don't have to live like this small life because right. My goal is to have a life of fun and freedom. And there's a lot of freedom in knowing like, no matter how bad I mess it up, we're all going to be gone one day anyway. So just, you might as well just go big. Yep. Yep. Can't argue with that. Huh? Can't argue with that. Yeah. So many people live in fear, you know, like fear of making a mistake of saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. And what I liked about Maria is sometimes she said really body things, but she's like, I'm going to be dying like in the next few months anyway. I can say whatever yeah. I want. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. I actually have a friend, not Maria, but I, ha- I had a 90, another 94 year old friend who lived in DC who passed away a couple of years ago. And, sh- and I asked her, um, you know, looking back at your life because she was an incredible woman. She was actually the cousin of William Soroyan who wrote, uh, the human comedy. He was a playwright. And so I, she lived a very interesting life. And I said, well, looking back on your life, what, what advice would you give, you know, me or somebody young? And she immediately said, I wish I would not, I would have lived in less fear mm-hmm. and I would have gone after things and not give things a second thought and just live with less fear. I mean, you know, and this is an incredibly accomplished, um, intelligent woman. And she just immediately said that. And so it's um it's tough when you're going through it in the moment, but yeah. it's kind of e- easy to say that in retrospect. But but living in no in no fear, I, I, I think I think what the, the baby step to that is living with less expectations or no expectations. Yeah, um, it's hard to live with no expectations. I mean, it's nearly impossible. But if you can just reduce them as much as possible, yet still keep that passion to that passion, then then then. And that's the best way. One of my friends who's an actor, she like booked a Hulu series. And I said, well, what, how did you do it? And she said, I told myself that I was going to go into the audition and make mistakes mm. and enjoy them. And I that just, freed her up. 
Yeah, I just posted a, a John Steinbeck quote that was, so now that you're not, now that you know you're not perfect, you can be good. Yeah. You know, um, from uh, East of Eden. Um, I don't know if I have the quote exactly right, but once you, once you, free, once you say, you know, you give yourself license to not have to be perfect, then you can be your best version, you know? Exactly. So I, I learned so much from her. I was like, yeah, just I'm going to go into this audition and make mistakes or mess it up or whatever and just have fun because that's what's real anyway. Like I'm a recovering perfectionist. Nobody wants to be friends with or be, you know, in love with a the perfectionist. They're so boring. It's like our it's our human, you know, vulnerability, our fallibles that uh, make us so lovable. It's such a, it's just a myth that you have to be perfect to be loved. And what was the main, what was the, the main turning point for you to. I love how you keep interviewing me. This well, is I, awesome. No, but I mean, I, I, I learned, I learned from, I learned everything from others. I don't I learn love anything this. from myself, you know, but you I'm know? just curious how, how have you, um, or how, how are you still dealing with the effects of being a perfectionist? Yeah. You know, I heard someone tell me once that I'm striving for imperfection today. Like instead of, cause I'm a striver, I'm like an alpha woman. I like achieving goals. Like, but if I'm striving for imperfection, then I can, I can hit that every single day, you know? So I think it was when she told me that cause she was a recovering perfectionist too. And she said, I'm striving for imperfection today. Interesting. Hmm. That shifted everything. And then I realized it's more important to feel good than to look good. Like looking good on the outside and looking perfect is all about perfectionism. But if I'm like inside fearful and not enjoying my life, then there's no point. I'd rather feel good and feel free and feel the ability to like, you know, go for things and make mistakes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's tough. It, 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 and it's tough. I mean, it, the, it, it's, are, are you noticing that, that less and less um, you're having to really confront this old part of you or is it, is it come back in unexpectedly today or how does that, you know, you it, that? it comes back in the way of comparison, a comparison. Mm. Like I think a lot of people do this. They look on social media and they, they look at what people have or what they're doing or, whatever. And they're like, you know, why can't I be over there? So that's just a different version of perfectionism. It's striving, wanting to look a certain way instead of just celebrating where I am and that I'm enough. Yeah. So I've been actually saying this affirmation a lot lately to combat that. And it's, I am enough. I have enough. I am willing to set myself free. Mm. Yeah. And helping with it on a daily basis. That's good. Yeah, I think of the the Roosevelt quote: uh, "Comparison is the thief of joy." I love that quote. Yeah, it's a good one. Very good. So, have you met any other soulmates since meeting Maria? <laughs> not, not like Maria. Maria is in a soulmate class by herself. Um, as far as soulmates, you know, Maria. After caring for Maria, and I put this in the new book. You know that basically Maria passed away, and that's when the first book ended. And the new book is about how I turned it into a play and traveled around the world, uh, spreading Maria's love. But I think after caring for Maria, it, it opened me up to, um, so many other th unexpected things. Like I took care of her son and then I took care of her, 
cousin in New York who, who was 96. And um, I think it opened me up. It, it, it um, again, it, it, it opened me up to who I really was. And that was attracting others in need, um, especially towards the end of their life. You know, that, that I just somehow found myself meeting these kind of people. And so I think, um, I think I'll never, I don't think I'll ever meet anybody quite, quite like Maria. Um, but, but she's opened me up to, to, um, to people that I would never have met had I not cared for her. So So you cared for other people until their dying days. Um, yes, I, I, when I moved to New York, um, to turn the book into a play, I, um, I had met her cousin once like two years before. And then I called her, she was at the time 94 and I called her daughter and I said, look, I'm moving to New York. Is your mother still alive? And I, I'm not, I didn't ask it. Like I mean, I said, how's your mother doing? And um, she was living alone and it didn't occur to either of us that I would be living with her. But suddenly she, she goes on the phone. She goes, Oh my gosh. Well, you know, my mother's 96. She's living alone. And I don't, you don't have a place to stay in New York. So why don't you stay with my mother? And um, you can just, you know, stay rent free, but you can also be the man around the house and you can make her meals. And she said, you're not going to be her caregiver, but you, you know, if you're around, she was being very nice, but of course yeah. I was going to be her, right? you know, in a way her caregiver, I was going to make her meals and stuff. And so I lived with Ruth for a year and then she, she passed away. And so um, that was my, you know, and I was putting the play up while I was taking care of Ruth. So that first year in New York was just incredible. And it was wow. all because of Maria. Yeah, That's incredible. So who do you want to take care of you in your 90s? Um, you want a oh hot young God. woman so you can relive the whole thing from uh, the other perspective? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe just a, maybe just a young, just a young person. Okay. A, a young, a young lady would be nice, but I think youth, I, I really found, I really saw firsthand how youth was really, um, was really so important, especially for older people. And I, I, I mentioned this to a friend the other day, you know, we have this problem with, I think the kids are, you know, more and more elders are sort of dust, you know, shoved aside and, and, um, um, I think that kids need to be more in tune to appreciating their elders. And I, I feel like you need to, the only way to get that is to like get a bunch of YouTube celebrities that have massive followings around the world and have them make videos about their grandparents or about elders. Um, I think that would really make a dent, but, um, but the, the, the power of youth and Maria developed it. She had a, a developed a little dementia towards the end and um, the best the best way to sort of keep that at bay was to just keep your mind stimulated with fun, young things, you know? Um, so yeah, I would like a young person, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to think too far ahead. That, that's kind of depressing to think what I, what I want at the end of my life. But now this uh, is very fantastical, but let's say you're in your nineties and in walks this like, you know, 25 year old, and what if it was like Maria and like her next life and you guys got to relive the whole thing over again uh, from the other side? I love it. Let's write the movie. <laughs> Sounds like that would be I love awesome. It. That would kind of be like the freaky Friday of caregiving. Uh, I, I think you guys that would switch be, roles. I think that would be wonderful. That would be amazing. It brings a tear to my eye. I know. That would be yeah. so cool. We should write that movie. That would be awesome. Yeah. So what is part two about without giving away the book? 
part two is a whole nother accidental adventure. That's after Maria passed away, I ended up caring for her son in the last year of his life. And then I ended up writing, deciding to write my book into a play. And then I ended up randomly hooking up with this theater director in London who flew to New York. And then I moved to New York and we did the play. And then I've, you know, ended up traveling around the world, um, traveling to Australia and Mexico and, and places to talk about Maria. And so it, it's, it, it's become, the story has become about sort of, in the beginning it was about, oh, I'm this caregiver for Maria. Now I'm this um, person who's, life was forever changed by this lady and I still find myself inspired by her and how she's still motivating me in my creative life. And, um, and, uh, it's just, um, it's just, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, the story continues long after Maria's gone for me. So. It's kind of like the hero's journey, you know, you were just, yeah living your regular life as an LA actor. And then she was like the impetus on page 30 to like start this hero's journey. And now because of Maria, you know, shifting your paradigm, the journey just continues to unfold. And that, that brings me to one of my favorite quotes by Helen Keller. Life is a great adventure or nothing. Life is a great adventure. Life is a great adventure or nothing. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it sort of reminds me of the, the Einstein quote where he said, um, there are two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle and one is as though everything is a miracle. It's like either everything's a miracle and everything's an adventure or nothing's a miracle and nothing's an adventure. <laughs> All or nothing, you know, it's like the glass yeah. is half empty or half full and... In this day and age, there's a lot of darkness happening, you know, with COVID and with our cultural divisiveness in the country. I call it a cold civil war, but it's like we get to shine that light and be that loving presence in this time. It's needed now more than ever. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very uh, interesting times, but I think, um, yeah, there's still still the same rules of life apply even in a pandemic and you have to you know i i think one of the point one of the points of this second book is to you know just how i continue to live out of my comfort zone and continue to say yes to things and and be open to things and i think um that's brought me all that i need i i feel like i feel like i've always been one to go after experiences and and relation and people um, and then I think that the other stuff um, that you need in life comes, um, has come, like the, the material things and the money and all this stuff has showed up um, because, you know, when you're, when you're living out loud or you're living out of your comfort zone, I think that's when, that's when everything will show up when you need it, exactly when you need it. I love that. That's how you ended up on this podcast because you're uh -huh. like, yes, I did. You asked me you're the first guest that asked me. I was like, yes, absolutely. You can be on the podcast. Oh so, yeah. <laughs> I've really enjoyed our conversation and we definitely have to talk more, but how can my uh, listeners keep in touch with you? How can they get your book? How can they learn more about part two of the Maria Altman saga? Uh, well, they're both, they're both on Amazon. Um, you know, part, part one has been on Amazon for a while. It's now known as part one because I didn't know I was going to write a part two. 
Um, and so you can find those on Amazon. I suggest in the, in the beginning of book two, I say, you know, don't read, you know, I, I suggest reading the first book first, just because like, for example, if you watch a TV show, would you ever tell anybody to watch the second season before the first season? No, but you know, the book stands on its own. I mean, that's my job as a, as a, as a memoirist, but, um, I suggest that your, your experience will be greatly enhanced if you read about part one, because then you get to know Maria in real time, just how I got to know her and boy, is she, uh, she something. So, um, yeah, you can find them both on Amazon and then, you know, my website, gregorcollins.com. And, um, I'm always, I always love to, to meet new people. And, and, uh, I meet a lot of people email me from around the world saying, you know, they read my book and they are caring for their loved one or they're caring for their mother or father. And, and um, it really resonated for them and they really felt like they had kind of an outlet to what is a very, you know, can be a very trying experience. So, um, yeah, Maria was all about bringing light, like the most somber subject could be turned into a beautiful, happy subject uh, when you were around Maria. So that's how I try to be. I, I don't like to be somber for too long, you know. Yeah, like to- I love it. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for joining this conversation with me and Gregor Collins on the Balanced Beautiful Abundance Show. And if you got something out of this interview, maybe you know someone who is caretaking for an elderly. Maybe you know someone who is taking life too damn seriously. Maybe you know someone that needs a little pick-me-up. Please share the podcast, rate and review. And we will be back soon with another wonderful guest. So thank you so much for your time. I am almost done with part one. And I've been like in awe of your writing, crying, laughing, like, oh my God, I feel like I know Maria. So I cannot wait to read part two. And we'll have to talk more about this idea for a screenplay. So thank you so much for your time, Gregor. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Rebecca. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Who says you can't have it all? I'm proof that you can. You just have to put your life into balance. Too much of anything, money, fitness, socializing, can overtake your life. When all seven aspects of your life work in harmony, you will achieve the balanced, beautiful, and abundant life you've always dreamed of. Please subscribe to hear more inspiring interviews. Is there someone you know who could benefit from this podcast? Please share this podcast with them please review this podcast. Your feedback will help me target your needs and plan for upcoming shows that answer your questions and feature guest speakers that can make a big difference in your life. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Rebecca E. Whitman. Feel free to DM me to book a free balance assessment call. And don't forget, stay balanced, beautiful, and abundant.